Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Dr. Paul Saladino on for the third time. What a tremendous honor. And I love connecting with you, man. I'm, I'm so sorry we're not in person. Uh, one of the reasons is we have the, uh, the, the, the age of social distancing. You've had so much commentary. I want people to go over to Fundamental Health and hear what you have to say about COVID and the quarantining. But now it's because you're all the way over in Texas and your life has just been on this amazing escalated journey since we first connected a couple of years ago. So I want to start by hearing... I mean, dude, you were, what, two-something years ago, you were finishing up residency in Seattle, Washington, and now it's like a whirlwind. So take us through that and what, you know, what insights have occurred. Oh, man, it's always good to see you, Brad. Thanks for having me back on, brother. This is a pleasure. I don't know, man. You know, I'll tell you what. So before medical school, I was a PA. I was a physician assistant in cardiology. And There's this, uh, when I was, I used to run a lot then, did distance running, and I don't really do a whole lot of distance running a lot now. I've gotten into sprinting, which you'll appreciate. So I do 100 meters. um, And my goal is to do 100 meters less than 15 seconds. So I'm pretty freaking slow. I don't don't know if I'm actually that slow, but I'm pretty slow as a sprinter, but I love it. So I was doing distance running, and I'll never forget, I was out on a run one time, and I, I knew I was going to medical school because I worked as a physician assistant in cardiology for four years. And it was really, really quickly during that, that experience that I thought, this is not my path. Uh, Western medicine is just focused on the symptom. And though there are a lot of intelligent, well-intentioned physicians, they're just giving medications. We're not trying to find the root cause. And I've joked with people that I'm sort of like an engineer who went to medical school. I'm like an engineer, surfer, backcountry skier, wannabe mountaineer who went to medical school accidentally twice. So the engineering side of my brain says, what causes, what causes this? What causes atherosclerosis, the formation of plaque in the arteries, what causes people to get sick. And I knew that I had to go back to medical school because I wanted more autonomy to be able to try and affect those paradigms. And I was on this run and there's a modest Yahoo song. He's not so popular anymore, but I don't know if this is a poem or something that he, um, that he is reciting or these are his lyrics. But I remember my intention as I was on the run, and this may sound cheesy, but it's, it's true. It, uh, the lyrics that I really like are, I'm the arrow, you're my bow, uh, you know, shoot me forth and I will go. And it was just this kind of intention as I was running really just between me and the universe, like, hey, like launch me wherever you want. And, and that's kind of been my perspective throughout the journey. And I apologize if that's overly woo woo, but you know, I, that's kind of how I feel about it. Like I just, I kind of put it out there for the universe. I grew up Catholic and religious and I don't really consider myself super religious now, but respect all religious traditions but from a universal spiritual perspective, I've always been curious, like, what are we doing here? We're on a planet and I love seeing the stars because it reminds me we're on a planet hurtling through the universe and there's something bigger than us, I believe. And so my intention has always just been like, hey, launch me, you know, where am I going? What is my intention? I just want to do good work in the world by being an arrow that's some force that's bigger than me that might exist, or maybe my brain is just making it up. It's sort of pulling back the bow and just launching me. And, you know, I went to medical school And then I went to residency and somewhere in there, you know, I kind of got pulled back on this bow and just freaking released. And who knows where this arrow is going to go, but that's really what it's been like over the last few years for me. I just feel like an arrow that's been shot forth and I'm just trying to, trying to hit the target, you know, trying to, trying to do it as truthfully and as intentionally as I possibly can, um, you know, from a place of, of honesty and authenticity, but you know, most of your listeners will know if they've heard my story or heard me on other episodes of your podcast that I'm interested in diet. I'm interested in nutrition. I'm interested in the things that make humans sick and what makes us kick a lot of ass. And I had my own issues in residency. I had eczema that was recurrent despite eating a really well-intentioned paleolithic diet that is great for a lot of people, but didn't work for me. And so I kind of kept digging, you know, it was like I had done the archeology span and said, yeah, paleo diet makes sense. I don't think humans ate a lot of grains evolutionarily. I don't think humans ate a lot of beans evolutionarily. And I'm not sure dairy works for everybody. It does for some people, but it doesn't work for everybody. So that makes sense. But, you know, that wasn't far enough. I had to keep excavating. And so the next discussions, as we've talked about in the past, were, hey, are are plants really good for us? Because everybody tells us that they're the bee's knees and that they're this magical thing. And 
you know, I, I've taken a stance that's completely diametrically opposed to that and said, I don't think plants are really that necessary or good for humans. People can refer to our previous podcasts if they want to know more about that. But that's been an interesting journey to kind of challenge these widely held sacrosanct notions that, that we need plants for fiber or polyphenols or plant chemicals. And I've taken the opposite stance and said, hey, I think humans should eat an animal-based diet that really recapitulates, that really mirrors what our ancestors ate. And, and if you look at the anthropology and you look at hunter-gatherer tribes today, they don't really eat vegetables. They don't, we can get into this. They don't eat kale or spinach or the equivalent in Africa. They don't eat a lot of leafy greens. They don't eat a lot of seeds. Um, and if they do, they're detoxifying the heck out of them. So, uh, you know, that's, that's been my path. It's been this journey to say to people, you know, some people are probably thriving on a paleo diet. Some people might be thriving on other diets that are intentional. But if you're not, realize that plant toxins could be affecting you negatively and that the more animal foods, especially animal foods eaten from nose to tail, eating all the organs, however you can get them, is going to give you a lot of unique nutrients. And, um, and then if you want to eat plants, understand which are more and less toxic. And yeah, it's been, a fa it's been an amazing ride. Yeah, when we talked two years ago, I was finishing residency at the University of Washington. I've maintained a virtual practice with clients, but most of my work has been podcasting and I wrote a book and just trying to get the message out uh, as much as I can and affect as many lives positively in an authentic way. Be, you know, be the straightest arrow. <laughs> the straightest arrow with a little ICBM uh, device on it, because obviously <laughs> you're driving the the direction. You're not just getting bounced around uh, as a medical professional. You're, you're taking it to the next level and, and jumping from one one pod to the next. And I appreciate you advancing this conversation. And for me, if nothing else, it's been an exercise in uh, critical thinking and uh, maintaining an open mind. And when I first heard you and, and Dr. Sean Baker and the others uh, talking about this uh, alternative idea that was so foreign to everything that we thought was common ground, um, it, you know, it was a beautiful experience to realize that uh, especially when you uh, get deep into the science and we can go back to the other shows and, and reference that or all the other stuff you've talked about, your very, very detailed book, um, it makes a lot of sense. And particularly the things that stand out to me are this idea of kicking ass and, and Dr. Saladino wants you to kick ass. And I have to ask myself, well, you know, what level ass am I kicking? Am I at level five, level seven or level nine? And the truth is, I have no freaking idea because I don't have a reference point to um, what level nine is if I'm sitting at level five. And that's why we want to be on this exploration journey that you convey so well in your own life as well as your message. Yeah, I think that that's an important point, Brad, that often we don't even know what we're capable of. Uh, and that's, that's almost passe to say that, but a lot of people are kind of going through their lives thinking that their, their achy joints or their knee or their back or their, their recurrent skin rash or their acne or their insomnia or their poor libido or the 20 extra pounds of weight are just aging, quote unquote. You're just getting normal. Older. It's normal, right? Yeah. And you see it around you. You go to your doctor and your doctor's 20 pounds overweight and has some you know flakiness of the skin of his face or you know, doesn't look great. And you're like, well, that's just how humans age. And maybe I had my heyday in my twenties or in high school, but I'm just a rusted old car. And I think that's baloney because I really believe that, that we are meant to be vital long into our lives. And, and you're a great example of that. Mark Sisson's a great example of that. There are so many examples of that. Indigenous hunter gatherers are a great example of that. If we look at the morbidity or the sort of the vitality, the health span of indigenous peoples, the, the more indigenous they are, the less westernized, quote, they become. And we can talk about what that means. The more vital they are, and they have what's called squaring of the morbidity curve. You know, modern westernized humans have this inexorable decline toward decrepitude. Our line just goes down from left to right gradually. You know, you're kind of a flat line until you're at 25 or 30, and then it just drops. Like, you know, it's like, a, it's like an easy blue or green ski slope that goes straight down. And you know, what happens in hunter-gatherers, if we're looking at the morbidity, like their actual vitality, they're, they're more of just a flat line. And then they drop off like a real cliff at the end in the last few weeks of their life. But they're vital into old age. And that's, that's always been my goal personally. A lot of this is, is generated or is, is rooted in my own personal desire to be able to kick a lot of ass until I'm 80 years old. Because, I mean, I'm 43 now. I I got started late. You know, after medical, after uh, college, I took six years off and just traveled the world. 
I used to ski bomb and I was in, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. Then I went to PA school and then I went to medical school. So I'm like 10 years behind all my colleagues. So I've got to be at least 10 years more vital than an average 43-year-old. And, and I want to be serving when I'm 80. So a lot of this is driven by a selfish desire to think I want my body to be at nine or 10 out of 10. And if, if, if we accept this decrepitude as normal, we're never going to get there. So that's why self-experimentation is so valuable. Elimination diets are valuable. And then what's cool is people kind of wake up and they go, man, I didn't even know I could feel this good. I didn't even know that morning headache didn't need to be there. I didn't even know I could think this clearly or I could lose the weight or that I'd want to, you know, have sex with my partner this much or whatever. And that's, what's really cool to see people achieve a bigger potential by aligning themselves more with an ancestral perspective. Really the Holy grail in my opinion is what is the species appropriate diet for humans and what is a species appropriate lifestyle for us? Because if we can align those things, we will, we will thrive. And so that's where, that's what we're all after, man. It's, it's a fun journey. I think uh, that's the quote of the the month, the inexorable decline into decrepitude. Uh, I'm shaking when I just uh, recite that because it's so <laughs> it's so scary. And I think uh, whatever motivates us, but I, I admit that I'm motivated by the fear of, uh, you know, experiencing that decline. And I want to fight that battle as hard as I can and, and be open to uh, experimentation in the case of where, where we started that little that little riff there. Um, but six years, I, I didn't realize that. And I want to know, like, there's a lot of uh, young people that take a year or two or maybe three years off, but how did it extend that far? And kind of how did that shape uh, the rest of your journey and, and you know, linger on and how you live your life today? Well, I don't do anything half-assed. So I figure if you're going to do it, go yeah, Take some go time home. off. Take some yeah. time off, man. <laughs> yeah. Take some time off. And, you know, honestly, during those six years, the majority of the time, I never thought I was going to go back to graduate school of any type. Mm. It was just a, you know, I was so burned out from college. I studied super hard in college and I just wanted to just travel. And it just kept, it was just more, it was just more adventure around every turn. It was, you know, I started out in Maine and then I went to Southern California, taught outdoor education. And I heard about this thing called the Pacific Crest Trail. And then I went to New Zealand the next, that, that winter to avoid the, the winter in the United States. And I, hiked around New Zealand. Then I came back and was like, I'm going to hike this Pacific Crest Trail. So I through hiked the whole thing. And then it was just adventure after adventure. Then I moved to Telluride, Colorado. And at that point I was like, I don't know how to ski, but I'm in Telluride, Colorado for the winter. So I might as well learn how to ski. And then thus began, you know, a, a love affair with skiing and being in the mountains and wild places. So I started out telemark skiing and then eventually did alpine skiing and went back to New Zealand to alpine ski and then came back and lived in Jackson Hole and, you know, all the while, I mean, I don't have a trust fund. I'm just living on the money that I'm making waiting tables. So it was just living hand to mouth. And there were a lot of funny stories. And a lot of times I was, you know, in a bunk room with my friends or, you know, renting out. I, I remember when I was in Jackson, I literally lived in a garage for a little while. I thought it was the best thing ever. You know, I could spend $200 a month to live in the garage as my bedroom. And, you know, it, those are the kind of things that I was always after. And, in Telluride, Colorado, we had a we had a low cost housing that I think was six or seven hundred dollars a month, and it was two bedrooms, and we put four people in two bedrooms <laughs> because the upstairs loft had a bunch of crawl spaces or a bunch of kind of like open space, and we figured out that we could just cut the drywall away to make a door, and so people were literally living in the walls, uh, you know, in Telluride, Colorado. There were four of us, and we all had our own bedroom because two of the guys were upstairs living like inside like an unfinished, you know, there's like nothing. It's just bare studs and drywall. And they were happy as clams to pay $200 a month to, to rent out a, you know, a drywall room in Telluride. So that was my life for years. And I think it just, it just shaped my interest in work-life balance and just getting wow. to have that much exploration, I think makes you, maybe that, maybe that's a part of why I'm an, I like questioning the status quo or I have, this iconoclastic vein within me, but you know, I just got to, I got to live footloose and fancy free for a long time and have a lot of adventures. And, you know, probably I got in trouble a lot like in nature and almost died. And I think it's important for humans to have those real experiences and, and, and experience danger and death or close to it and consequence and changes you as a human. And I think coming out of that and going to PA school is like crazy, right? It's like night and day, but it just, it just probably has made me this, uh, this rule breaker throughout the rest of my career, which is a good thing because 
medicine rewards rule followers. You have to be very good at memorizing and very good at regurgitating. And so somehow I am the anomaly that made it through the system. I may be a little bit conspiratorial with this statement, but I kind of think I'm the person that Western medicine didn't want to get into medical school. Like they don't want me to have an MD, but I do. Um, I'm very disruptive. And that's my goal actually is to be, to be even more disruptive uh, to Western medicine as much as I can and to question the things that need to be questioned. And a lot of that probably grew out of swimming flooded rivers in New Zealand and, you know, falling down muddy ravines while I was there or all kinds of adventures I had getting caught in avalanches in Jackson Hole or, you know, these things that happened during those six years that just made me think like, wow, there's a lot of life out there to live. And, you know, you don't always have to play by the rules. Yeah. And I guess you don't have to obsess about this tiny little world and this tiny little problem that you're in. Like you're, you're struggling in a certain class in PA school, but you freaking walk the Pacific Crest Trail and it kind of gives you a perspective. I feel the same way for about, about my athletic experience, which was so dramatically different than something that's going on on my computer screen that I, I could get worked up about. But wait a second, I, you know, I rode down mountain passes at a high rate of speed, risking my life. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nice perspective to have than, than that linear path that we're all kind of following when we're in the, the institutional setting of, of uh, grade school and high school and even in college and especially the, uh, the medical training is so, so regimented. It has to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my only regret living in Austin is that there's not better stars here at night because it's a city and there's light pollution, but I love looking at the stars even when I can see them a little bit, I was out at Rome Ranch in Fredericksburg here, which is a farm doing regenerative agriculture. I was out there with the folks from Force of Nature, which is an amazing regenerative meat company. Mm. And as I was driving home on Saturday night, uh, I was looking at the stars and they're just, they're big and bright, which they are in Texas. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's just, they're so clarifying. And that's something I always forget. And I always need to remind myself about like, oh yeah, don't get too stressed. You're going to die. You know, like we're all gonna die. We're all just little ants on this rock hurtling through the universe, you know, with stars surrounding us. And there's a lot of there's a lot of perspective that's easy to lose when I get caught up in this digital world too. And I'm like, not enough people liked my Instagram post, or <laughs> you know, why are people not engaging with my content? Or you have detractors, Paul. They're everywhere. <laughs> you have yeah. haters. Imagine that. Or you know, after going on Rogan, like all these people want to debate me now, and they want to you know they want to argue with my ideas, and it's like ah screw them, you know, like there's bigger, there's bigger fish to fry. And I'm a human being having experience on the planet earth, which is really profoundly beautiful. And uh, yeah, that's one of my goals in the future is to get back to that. Cause the last two years have been kind of a rocket ship ride. And uh, I certainly haven't spent enough time in the wilderness. I've spent some, but not enough. Well, this PCT experience, just to go back for a second, you said the, the term through hike, does that mean hiking it straight through. And are you talking about the full length from, I believe it goes from Canada to the Mexican border. Like it's a couple thousand miles or something. How long it's does 20, that take? 2,700 miles. Oh, uh, mercy. Yeah. 20, 106 days I was on it. Yeah. I, I hiked from Mexico to Canada in 106 days. That's fast. Uh, we were averaging, yeah, we averaged a good amount per day. Um, we took a couple rest days, but once you get there and if you have the right footwear, which was just sneakers and a lightweight mm-hmm. pack, you can hike 30 miles a day. No problem. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then when you get off the mountain range, like somewhere past Mount Whitney, you're walking through the desert, uh, for, for a spell, right? Well, the deserts before Mount Whitney. So you start in at the border of, uh, Mexico and California mm-hmm. and then you go, go through, north. Okay. Yeah. You go North. Yeah, 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 exactly. I was going, you want to go South to North, North to South is much harder seasonally. So you go south to north. Some people do go north to south, but I went south to north and you go through like the San Jacintos, the San Bernardinos, then you go through the Mojave and then you go through, you know, the Sierra and, you know, yeah, all the wilderness areas down there. So that's a pretty awesome athletic effort. I mean, did you get tired at any point or feel like bailing or taking a week off or something? No, you know, Brad, I, I haven't talked about it much, but, um, humans are meant to walk. We're really good at walking. And, you know, the first few days you get kind of chafed in, in unmentionable areas and your feet swell up over the first few weeks. I think by the end of the trail, I had size 13 shoes, uh, you know, and I'm five, nine, five, 10. So I had these really big clown feet by the end and my feet got really big, uh, maybe size 12, 13. Um, but 
the, the coolest thing was that this was one of the most joyous times of my life. There was really never a day that I, that I didn't want to be there. It's just so simple what we need to be happy as humans. It was, I love the simplicity of the, of the existence. And I think that actually it's something that's kind of stuck with me, though I forget it often. I think that the more simple we can make our life, the happier we become. All I had to do every day was stay warm, preferably mostly dry, and, and you had food. And so you just got to walk. Every day, all you had to do was walk. And in our culture in 2020, I mean, this was 20 years ago I did this, Brad. So I was 23, this was 2000 and, or 22. And, uh, you know, I was, it, it, to our culture today, we would say that's incredibly boring. Well, that's good medicine. Boredom is good medicine. But at that time in my life, it wasn't boring at all. It was, every day was a new horizon. Every day was a new wilderness that I got to explore. And how cool is that? I mean, I just got to see mountain after landscape. It just felt every day felt like an adventure. And you mail yourself food along the way. We had 27 resupplies and (laughs) yeah, you always have food. You don't always have good food, but you always have like the next day. And it just was so simple. And this is kind of, you can imagine this is probably something like the way we lived for the last 4 million years, right? We lived in small groups of people that knew each other, that were tribes. We were semi-nomadic. We moved around a little bit here and there. We hunted animals. We, we stayed warm and dry. We protected each other. We supported each other. And that was it. That was like all we had to do. And, and if we got an animal, we celebrated. And that was, that was the bounty of the universe. And if if there was, if there weren't any animals, we, we prayed for, you know, some sort of, you know, nature to provide for us. And, but throughout it all, we were just living a life that was so simple and there weren't any, there were no complicated stressors. It was just day to day exploring the wilderness, being out there with people. And it was joyous. I mean, there was never a day that I got bored. There was never a day I wanted to get off. Um, and in fact, the one other thing that I've talked about a little bit, and I talk about this in the book is that I never got sick of animal foods, but I got sick of many different plant foods. So later on, after I finished the Pacific Crest Trail and when I was a PA for a little bit, I was actually a vegan and I got really into wheatgrass. And I'll never forget coming home from a run one day and grinding my own wheatgrass and wheatgrass juice and just looking at it and nearly vomiting going, I never want to drink that again in my life. It's like the human body understands that there are toxic alkaloids in wheatgrass And these alkaloids just built up in my system and body just gave me this kick in the nuts and said, stop eating that shit, Paul. And the same thing kind of happened on the Pacific Crest Trail. Before the trail, I was probably in a vegetarian mode and I was brainwashed when I was 23 into thinking meat was bad for me. So the, the foods that I had prepared were a lot of dried fruit and uh, grains. I'd made this porridge for myself and my buddy Broxton, who I hiked it with out of wheat and oats and millet, the best grains I could think of. And we were going to have this oats every morning for breakfast. And I'll tell you, by this, probably by the end of the first month, after 30 days in a row of that porridge every morning, I threw it out. I never wanted to eat it again. I was so sick of flax seeds and oats and millet and buckwheat. And, and just, I was like, this is garbage. I don't want to eat these grains anymore. And granted, I wasn't fermenting the grains. I was just soaking them overnight. But the grains had that type of a reaction for me. I got sick of um, peanut butter. Um, and I don't eat peanut butter anymore, but most people would think, oh, peanut butter is amazing. I'll never get sick of peanut <laughs> butter, right? I got sick of peanut butter in about the same amount of time. Totally sick of peanut butter. I got sick of dates. I got sick of every plant food that I had brought, but things like cheese and meat and jerky never got old. And the only wow. the mistake I made was I didn't bring enough of them. And this was 20 years ago. I had no idea about organs. Nobody was making desiccated organs or anything like that. Like, you know, like, like we make it hard in soil or any of this kind of stuff. So there were no desiccated organs. There was no liver and I didn't have any jerky. Um, but every resupply I would, I would eat a hamburger or three, um, because meat was inevitably what I wanted in that experience. And I got so sick of all the plant foods that I thought were going to be good for me. And so, you know, inevitably the the food kind of took a a left turn and I ended up eating junk food toward the end because it was all that sounded good. Mm -hmm. I ate things like pop tarts and I remember eating just bread with cream cheese on it at the end, which is just calories. I had no idea where my life was going to go, but I, I never got sick of animal foods. And if I've often thought about this and some people have asked me, how would you hike the Pacific Crest Trail now? And I know exactly how I would do it. You know, you can make jerky and give yourself 
fresh meat at resupplies and you could bring desiccated organs and you could bring liver jerky. And then I would bring some carbohydrates in the form of honey. And I would bring something like tallow for fat. And the simplest diet would be pretty much like, you know, many indigenous tribes eat in Africa now, meat, organs, fat, and honey or seasonal fruit. And that's, that's it. That's all you need. So it's an interesting experience and an experiment, thought experiment thinking like, what would you eat on that simple uh, path? Wow. I mean, uh, from your psychiatry training, I wonder if there's a, uh, a scientific rationale that you got sick of this stuff because of the uh, nutrient deficiencies or in the case of wheatgrass. I mean, I felt that way when I took my first shot of wheatgrass, but I kept doing it because I've been told it's so good for me, uh, but it smells and tastes disgusting. And you can, you can taste it on your, uh, on your skin or you can smell it on your skin as soon as you ingest it. And the whole thing is just all in the name of health rather than uh, the, the intuitive sense that this is a nourishing food. Yeah. We, I mean, at the beginning of my transition to an animal-based diet, a carnivore diet over two years ago, I looked at my fridge and there was tons of spoiled broccoli and kale. And I was like, <laughs> I just don't, I mean, I've been, I've been forcing myself to eat it for, for years thinking, I know it's good for me. And I would put it in a pan and saute it with olive oil and then put some salt on it. And really probably what I liked was olive oil and salt. And then the the kale was just a vehicle and by cooking it, I detoxified it somewhat. But yeah, I mean, I looked in my fridge and I would just buy kale and it would just go bad. And then I would buy kale and it would go bad. And I would buy broccoli and it would go bad. I don't even want to eat this stuff anymore. And that was the beginning of just thinking, why am I even doing this? Why am I even eating these foods? And now we know that there's anti-nutrients and there are defense chemicals in those foods. Now on the Pacific Crest Trail, I had no kale or broccoli, but I can guarantee you that it, within less time than a month, I would have been like, this is garbage. Get this stuff out of here. I would not have wanted to eat that either. So yeah, I think that the body has, not even on a psychiatric basis, just on a, just on a fundamental uh, like nutritional basis, we have def defenses and things built in that if you're eating the same thing every day and these toxins are accumulating, your body's going to say, get, get out of this, you know, stop doing that. Well, I don't know if I shared with this, you with this before, but when you and Ben Greenfield got deep into my head back then in early, uh, I think it was early 2019, um, I've always enjoyed salads. It was the centerpiece of my diet for years and years. I did a great job creating this beautiful, colorful salad with all the, the dressings and the accoutrements, the nuts, and maybe some pomegranates. And it was this beautiful uh, work of art that would be photographed for a book cover. Uh, but then I started to second guess the rationale for eating it and whether it was in fact healthy and necessary. And as soon as I did that, uh, my affinity for salads went away and I'd look <laughs> at the bowl or I'd look at the plate of steamed broccoli and I would raise my hand my whole life and say, sure, I love broccoli. As a little kid, I ate the good stuff. I was no trouble for my parents, uh, but something happened psychologically. And I realized that I associated my desire or my pleasure for the food because it was good for me. And the same for eating some junk food. Uh, you know, uh, I don't like it because I know it's not good for me is a huge part of the reason that I don't like it. And so that was a real mind blower because then I think maybe I took a, a step forward in escalation of my uh, intuitive ability to, to nourish my body uh, optimally rather than just, um, you know, following in line with what people are telling me what to do and then convincing myself it's it, it's tasty because it's good for me if that makes sense absolutely and i mean people can do this experiment i don't think anyone will will actually do it but eat it eat it you know eat eat ex exclusively animal foods for 30 days or eat just kale for 30 days so you could eat you know you could eat <laughs> you could say just i'm just going to eat ribeye steaks and i don't advocate for this kind of an animal based diet because i want people to get the unique nutrients and organs but you could eat just ribeye steaks for 30 days and you'd probably come out of it in 30 days and be like yeah this still tastes good that was my experience on the pacific crest trail just eat kale for 30 days and i guarantee you by the second or third day you'll be like this is garbage what the hell am i doing like I don't want to eat this anymore. It's no good. And I think that we've created this false, we're really false value for these plant foods through variety. And we've, we've put, you know, dressings on them and we've put things on them to, to change the flavor. And the dressing is usually what is more nutritious than the kale or the dressing is, is, is more flavorful than the kale. 
you know, and, and people think like, oh, I love spinach. And it's like, I don't think you really love spinach. Uh, I don't think you really like raw broccoli and you could steam it and detoxify it somewhat. But I mean, how many people eat raw broccoli with nothing on it, right? It's, you could eat a steak with nothing on it, no problem, but you're going to get sick of that stuff really quickly. But we have this fake amount of variety as humans in 2020. I could go out to Rome Ranch, like I did, and hunt deer. So I could eat deer meat every day, right? And, and there are buffalo there that are raised there, but buffalo are also, uh, they're also native to the United States. So in the past, I could have gone out on the plains and hunted a buffalo or hunted a deer. I could have had meat every single day if I were a good hunter and shared it with my tribe. But we go to the grocery store and we see this vast array of plant foods that never would have existed in Texas, right? There's no cabbage growing wild in Texas. There's no kale or broccoli or any of these edible plants in Texas. And there's not even a lot of this fruit. You know, I went into the store the other day at Whole Foods and I'm an advocate for seasonal fruit. There's cherries from Chile, you know? There's no cherries in December in Texas or really, you know, anywhere other than Chile. So we've created this environment where we can get this false sense of the value of plant foods with a falsely created context around variability. There's no way you're going to get wild kohlrabi in Texas. In fact, there's very few edible plant foods here at all. Maybe you're going to get a little bit of prickly pear or this or that, but you're just never going to get the variety that people expect to see in a grocery store. I mean, you know, if, if Whole Foods run out, run, runs out of radishes or maybe they run out of, you know, something else, like people are going to be like, where are the radishes? And it's like, there's no radishes in Texas. Like nobody grows though. That doesn't grow wild here. And so if you look around you, there's a wide variety of animal foods that humans don't get sick of eating everywhere no matter what your latitude is at. But the plant foods are very limited and there's only a certain number of edible plant foods anywhere on the planet that we would have had access to. And I think we would have, would have had very clear signals like, this is not good for you. You know, This is not something that you want to be eating every day um, when it comes to the roots, the stems, the leaves, the seeds, the grains, the nuts, the beans, all these type of things. Well, we've also been uh, uh, indoctrinated to the importance of uh, microbiome diversity and making sure that we consume this huge array of colorful plants that we can find at Whole Foods and wherever else. And you make a good case uh, counter to that. That the and I think uh, our man Brian, the, the filmmaker, when we had those long talks with you and Sisson in L.A., and I think we were driving home, and he offered up this insight, which was great. He said, "You know, there's a rainforest that's a very diverse ecosystem, but a desert is just as diverse and just as healthy and, and vibrant, uh, even though there's you know a lack of, of plant diversity. But you know, the case for eating a whole shit ton of different foods." Uh, you've said that really well, that there's, there's, no, there's no guarantee that that's healthy and it could be challenging, especially for the different uh, genotypes and things of that nature. Yeah. And if you really look at the research, so on my podcast, Fundamental Health, I'm going to have another conversation with Lucy Mayling. I've had a previous conversation with her and, you know, in my book, I talk about this and she thinks about the gut a lot. She's a PhD researcher and you know, we've, we've shared this all the time, Brad, and I could do a screen share now. I don't know if you're going to use a video, but there are so many, there are so many studies now that show that the increased amount of fiber in the human diet does absolutely diddly squat for the alpha diversity of the gut. Um, and, and though the Hadza and other indigenous cultures have been hailed for their widely diverse microbiome, their diets are not that diverse. <laughs> They eat basically five foods, you know, and this has been documented anthropologically and confirmed by people I know who've been there. They love honey. They eat meat and organs. They'll eat seasonal berries. They'll eat baobab fruit, which is a tree in Africa, and they might eat some tubers, but that's it. Like that's, that's not that many different types of food. They don't, they don't have a wide variety of color. There's not that much colorful in their diet. And, and the in actual controlled studies, giving people more fiber doesn't change the alpha diversity one bit and removing fiber doesn't change alpha diversity. I haven't had fiber in my diet in two and a half years. And if you look at the alpha diversity that I've tested on myself, it's totally fine. It's, it's in the, I think I was 94th percentile. So very diverse. And I've seen it over and over it. Diversity is not about a wide variety of plant foods. That notion is insidious and it drives me bonkers because it's just freaking wrong, man. It's just wrong. You don't need that. And I mean, you know, my gut is not inflamed. I've tested my gut. There's no inflammatory markers. I poop every day and it's beautiful. Sometimes I send you photos, you know, and screen share. 
yeah, screen, let me screen share a picture of my poop from this morning. And, you know, how would you like, how would anybody say my gut is inflamed? I don't eat any fiber. Um, and I haven't in a long time. So this notion of fiber and gut microbiota is just completely false. And as you rightly point out, for a lot of people who have inflamed guts or issues, more fiber and more vegetables make them worse. So what are we doing? Again, it's this dogmatic notion that's just being force-fed to us, literally and figuratively, that you need more fiber. The answer to your health is more fiber, more fiber, more fiber. For a lot of people, that just makes them fart more, makes them more pain, more gas, more bloating, more constipation, more bleeding, more difficulty passing stool. And you're thinking, this isn't working for me. You'd be amazed at how well people do on like zero fiber diets. Um, it's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. You don't fart anymore. I can remember when I was a vegan, man, it was so hard to be around humans because I always farted. And whether I was in an, a shared office as a PA or I was in a movie theater or I was sitting on a girl's couch or sitting in my car, you know, my, my salvation was those thick couch cushions that had that had give to them because you could fart into those cushions and it would store your fart. And it, you know, you, somebody <laughs> wouldn't smell it. The problem is that when you get up, it kind of releases part of your fart, but you just get up real quickly and you walk away, right? But my car kind of smelled like an old stale fart. And this is, I mean, people are grossed out by it and they're like, you know, they might think, oh, this guy's crazy, but it's true. I mean, I just farted all the time. And after I moved away and went to medical school, I heard from people that I worked with when I was a vegan PA, that it was impossible to be in the office with me <laughs> because it just smelled so, I just fart all the time. Years like, later just, at the reunion, they can now, yeah. the truth comes out about Dr. Paul. Yeah, it's true. And you know, it's funny because some of these vegan proponents will, will, will claim that we should embrace this, embrace your 25 mm. flatulations per day. This means you're healthy. Just bounce around and fart and love your farts. And it's like, yeah, I don't think so because there's a completely other side of that. And it's being able to be everywhere you want to be and never farting. It makes dating or having a partner, sleeping in the same bed with someone way easier. I think the listeners are now either laughing because they have a good sense of humor. And if they're not laughing, it's because it's hitting too close to home. And <laughs> for me, I, I, I remember one of my epiphanies, this was right around the time when you guys mess with my head permanently. And I was talking to a really health conscious athletic friend of mine about our morning green smoothies that I'd kind of hooked him up and sent him the proper YouTube videos to see all the raw produce going into the blender. And he said, I was complaining because I uh, reliably would get a bloated uh, stomach for several hours after drinking this wonderful green concoction. And he said, oh, well, yeah, I do too. Uh, but of course, it's worth it because it's so healthy. And his comment stopped me dead in my tracks because I'm thinking, if something's healthy for you, should you have transient abdominal pain, gas, bloating, and uh, you know, long-term with our elimination practices, should they be a troublesome part of our life or it should be an ordinary routine thing where, and, and you know, that was my experience with carnivores. Like, how did you feel? Well, in terms of elimination, I felt nothing. There was no drama. There was no difficulty. And that's you know the new normal going back to that level five, level seven, level nine. I didn't think anything of farting once in a while or having the occasional day or three days where your stomach's not right. But I believe that's all due to this effort that's gone down the wrong path to get our fiber and get our plant diversity and all these things that could be, could be traumatizing. I think it is. I mean, Joe even said it when I was on the podcast with him, he said, I used to eat drink these green smoothies and I used to think they were so valuable for me. And then I would just have this massive shit or whatever he said, you know, he would just evacuate. And it's like, that's just not good. Not right, man. It's not that's right. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to drink a green smoothie and then crap your brains out. That's not healthy. And that's the notions that I'm challenging. And if we think about all this, why are we even, why are we eating all these greens in the first place? And you could say, oh, vitamins and minerals, but then you can look at, oh man, look, eat nose to tail, get organs in your diet, either through regular fresh organs or desiccated organ supplements, um, you know, like, like, like we make it hard in soil or whatever. And, um, you know, get these organs in your diet and, and you're going to get all the nutrients you're going to get in kale and more, and they're more bioavailable. There's no nutrients found in kale or spinach or broccoli that you can't get in bigger quantities that are more bioavailable, generally speaking in animal foods. And that's, that's a crazy realization. Like just eat some freaking liver or spleen or pancreas with your meat 
you'll get it all and then you won't crap yourself. It's just, it's just not complex. Uh, I want to talk about your interest in the Hadza and your, your plans to go uh, study in Africa, but I think it's time for a little commercial because it, it, comes, it comes to mind that these, these desiccated organ, organ supplements that we're so fond of, you know I have my male optimization formula with organs <laughs> and you have your wonderful new line of heart and soil. Uh, are we losing anything uh, in comparison to eating the actual uh, organ freshly or freshly raw in the case of how you trained me to eat liver. Uh, and I'm asking because I know in the vitamin scene, which I've been in for so long, when you're extracting something in a laboratory and you're taking it from its original source and you know grounding it into a powder, you are definitely losing something from eating uh, the original source. But in the case of this, uh, you know, this freeze-dried desiccated organ, it seems to me this might be as, as pure as you can get to where it's uh, you know like for like comparison to eating a slice of raw liver. It's as close as you can get. Mm. It's definitely safer than eating raw liver because none of the none of the microorganisms are going to survive desiccation, this freeze-drying process where you sort of dehydrate something at a very low temperature by lowering the pressure. So it's safer than eating raw. Uh, I think definitely raw is going to give you more nutrients, but then again, raw is going to result in some food poisoning sometimes too. And so if you cook your organs, you're definitely going to lose nutrients. So I would say desiccation, freeze-drying is definitely better than cooked organs. So if somebody's going to take liver and like put the liver in a crock pot or put the liver in a pan and fry the liver through and through so it's not even pink in the middle, you're better off eating desiccated organs, in my opinion, because they're going to preserve more of the nutrients. But yeah, I mean, certainly fresh and rare or raw is better than desiccated, but desiccated is pretty darn good and definitely pretty safe, totally safe. And it's so much more portable. Uh, it's difficult for me to get raw liver to Puerto Rico or wherever I'm going sometimes. So the desiccated organs make it easier. At the top of a mountain, you don't have to bring a glass thing with like my raw liver in it, whatever. So it's easier, it's portable, it's safer. I think it's the best option for a lot of people. Certainly if you want to eat raw organs, you can. There is always a question of contamination and food quality. You got to be careful with that. Um, as you move through it, there are reports of food poisoning based on just not quality organs. But yeah, I mean, you're going to lose a little bit, but freeze drying is going to preserve as much as possible. Oh, gee, I'm going for the the grass-fed uh, raw liver. And when you sliced it up for me raw at my mom's house in LA, uh, it was great. It tasted better than the, the attempts I make to cook it. So I'm wondering if it's frozen, if I, if I freeze it plenty and then I thaw it out just enough to slice it, is that minimizing my risk of contamination or am I still just rolling the dice because you need to cook it to, uh, do those things live in the freezer too? Uh, some of them can. Yeah. <laughs> okay. some, of, some of them can. Yeah. I don't know some if you bacteria. said that to me when you first tr uh, had me try some of that raw liver, I, but I, okay. Raw liver is pretty rare for anyone to get sick on. Honestly, oh. like it's not, it's not common to get sick from raw liver, but it happens occasionally, you know, depending on the organ. Worth the, worth the risk, I'd say, as opposed to risking yeah. a, a lifetime of green smoothies and bumping your stomach out for five hours. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the other, the, the middle ground is blanching where you can just boil bone broth mm -hmm. and then throw the organ in, which is going to kill anything that's on top on the outside, but leave the inside pretty rare. So there's blanching. But, you know, frankly, a lot of people don't want to eat organs because they don't like the taste of liver. And how many people have eaten a spleen? I mean, I ate a spleen today and how many people are going to eat a testicle or, you know, all these valuable organs? Maybe people eat heart, but, you know, um, there's a lot of organs that are difficult for people to eat. Uh, let me ask you about your uh, recent emphasis on including honey in the diet. Uh, I think there was, I forget what show you were on, there was a debate, is honey a plant food or an animal food? And you're, you're saying it's, it's totally carnivore. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we know you're very athletic. You're trying to, uh, you know, pursue these goals. You're burning a lot of energy every day. And so there is this question of strategic inclusion of carbohydrate into the diet for performance and recovery purposes, if nothing else. And you seem to rank honey high up there as your choice. And tell me how you've experimented with that and integrated it over the last uh, couple of years or whenever this started going on. Yeah. Honeygate, the honey controversy. There's a lot oh, of- Oh, everything's controversy. Yeah. Like what- <laughs> People just don't want to leave you alone, man. It's, I just well, come on I now. love it. Yeah. 
I should call my podcast just like controversial health or something. Controversial health podcast. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, after a year and a half, a little more than a year and a half of being fully animal-based with quote, zero carb, there are some carbohydrates in liver, but zero carb additional, I noticed that I was getting some muscle cramps and when I would go to like rock climb and I would point my foot for a hold that was really precise, or I would, I was getting palpitations at night too with my heart. And I thought, this is, this is too much. Like I, I'm going to reincorporate some carbohydrates. I think those electrolyte deficiencies are connected with carbohydrate avoidance. And evolutionarily, I think lower carbohydrate would have been a seasonal thing, right? There's seasons when you get honey, there's seasons when you get fruit and there's seasons when you get lower carb. I don't think we would have gone more than a season on a very low carb diet or a quote ketogenic diet. So, you know, this was kind of one of these things that you learn in the process and you grow through it. And I, the first carbohydrate that I incorporated was honey because I thought, well, you can make an argument that honey is from bees. I don't think there's a whole lot of plant defense chemicals in there. Or if there are, the bees are potentially fermenting them out or they're detoxified from the bees. Um, honey is a very complex food that we don't fully understand chemically, but Honey was great for me, Brad. Uh, there were a number of months that I wore a continuous glucose monitor from NutriSense, and uh, you could see my blood sugar bump a little bit, but overall, my uh, glycemic variability stayed very low. And then later in the year, I tested my fasting insulin, my C-peptide, and they were rock bottom. My fasting insulin was less than three. My C-peptide was 0.45. So clearly, I was remaining insulin sensitive, even with the inclusion of around 100 plus grams of carbohydrates in the form of honey exclusively per day. So then I thought, let me try some other carbohydrates. And I included some squash and immediately some eczema came back for me on my hip where I get it, right? So that's happened twice to me now. So for whatever reason, my body doesn't play well with lectins in squash. And though I would consider squash for some people to be a less toxic plant food, doesn't work for me. This is the message of the, the idea that Plant foods are not always going to play well with every human, and we shouldn't be dogmatic about believing they're absolutely essential. Then I played around with white rice for a little bit, and white rice is okay, but it didn't really impress me. It, it you know, it might spike your blood sugar a little lower than honey, but at the same time, it was it didn't really have a satiety point. Easy to overconsume. My concerns with white rice are generally that it's just not. It's a grain. It's going to have some lectins. It could bother some people. It's hard to get white rice that's very low in arsenic. It's much lower than brown rice in arsenic, but there are some mycotoxins and some arsenic in rice. So it's probably the, the least toxic grain for a lot of people if they want to have some carbohydrates and amylose, especially if you pressure cook it. But I kind of I kind of left rice in, in the past for now. I experimented with sweet potato. I burped for the next seven hours. Didn't really feel great with sweet potato. Sweet potatoes are kind of high in oxalates. Um, I experimented with fruit and uh, whether my gut flora has shifted or what, multiple experiments with multiple days of fruit kind of left me feeling bloated and gassy uh -huh. and, un, you know, not satiated and kind of, um, there's a feeling that I get when I eat fruit where I just want to keep eating more and more and more. And, and it doesn't, I don't get the same sort of satiety point. You know, I eat two meals a day. I love two meals a day. I eat my second meal of the day early in the day. It's now 530 in Texas. I ate my dinner at 3.30 today, p.m., and that's it. And I don't, I'm not going to think about food for the rest of the day. Mm. And when I eat fruit, I start thinking about food a little bit more between meals, which is strange because I like the fact that with honey or other carbohydrates, even with rice, it was better. I didn't think about food between meals, but with, with, with the rice, or excuse me, with the fruit, I was thinking about it more. So fruit, maybe, maybe it wasn't seasonal or whatever, but... The fruit didn't really play well with me either. So I experimented with carbs. Overall, the take home for me was humans do good with some carbohydrates. You don't need a whole lot more. I've, I've heard this adage from other people that you maybe think about starting with 70 to 100 grams a day. And if you're doing massive amounts of workouts, you earn your carbohydrates above that. If you're doing Brad, Brad Kern's, you know, speed golfing or whatever, or you're, uh, if you're doing CrossFit, like some of our friends or you're doing whatever, then, then maybe more carbohydrates are going to be beneficial. But for me, you know, most days I'll go to the track and run six 100s or I'll do a couple of sets of front squats or, you know, I don't feel like I need many more than 70 to 100 grams of carbohydrates a day. Um, the inclusion has been an improvement for me psychologically, physically, electrolyte balance wise. But I think that people can do that on their own and kind of see what they, what they prefer. Now, I'm not a huge fan of high fructose corn syrup. I'm not a huge fan mm -hmm. of Pepsi or 
Coke or, you know, wheat because of the lectins. People always ask, what about oats? I'm not a huge fan of oats. Lots of, lots of phytic acid and lectins and oats. So, you know, I think you got to be careful. And um, I've got a cookbook coming out in 2022. Um, the publishing game is strange right now, but we'll have a whole spectrum. And at the Heart and Soil website, depending when this podcast comes out, <clears throat> at heartandsoil.co, we will have a, uh, an infographic that kind of goes over how to construct an animal-based diet that has a full spectrum of plant toxicity for people that'll make it easy to see kind of how I visualize this. And do you think there's a great deal of individuality where some people can just thrive on those raw leafy greens and the ones that are highest on the score of plant toxins and they report, uh, you know, exceptional health and kicking ass level nine? Or do you think that pretty much everyone is, uh, can benefit from doing some testing and restricting of these things that you argue compellingly, uh, whatever benefits they offer, we can certainly access through redundant pathways like cold exposure and uh, doing a six times 100s at the, uh, in the UT stadium with the, uh, the key that you have to the, to the big, the big arena <laughs> there. Yeah. I wish I did, Brad. Uh, let me know if you know anybody. Yeah, I, I don't think that kale is going to be good for anybody, but I do think there is genetic variability in terms of dairy, squash, mm. berries, sweet potatoes, things that are a little more in line with what our ancestors might have eaten. I think nuts are generally going to cause digestive issues for everyone because they have digestive enzyme inhibitors. And I think beans are going to be problematic for most people for the same reason. So, you know, within this dietary construction that we'll put on the website shortly, um, there, there's a spectrum of plant toxicity. And I talk about this in my book, The Carnivore Code as well. Like, you know, I think if you think about it from the perspective of a plant, leaves and stems and a lot of roots and seeds, which is seeds, nuts, grains, and legumes, are defended. If you have animal goes eating these things, the plant is going to die. Generally, plants are okay with you eating the fruit. So I think a lot of people are going to do better than me with seasonal fruit. Some, some tubers or some roots are not as toxic as others. Some roots are very toxic, like cassava, unless you process it very carefully. But, you know, some roots like sweet potato, people can do well with. I wouldn't do white potato because it's in the, the nightshade family and has a lot of potential immunologic triggering issues for, um, for that one. But I think that generally, if you, if you think about animal base, the way that I conceptualize this and have tried to communicate it is that you want to focus on animal foods, nose to tail, getting either fresh or desiccated organs with all their unique nutrients, and then maybe 20% of your diet as the least toxic plant foods, which is primarily sweet fruit, non-sweet fruit, which would be things like avocado, squash, mm. olives. These are fruit, but they're not sweet. And then maybe tubers for some people, maybe rice for some people, maybe honey is the best one for people, but those would be the least toxic, quote, plant foods I can think of. And, you know, it's cool. I'm going to Africa and I want to talk about, we can talk about the Hadza, and I was talking to one of the women who's organizing it uh, the other day, and she's been there a lot. And I asked her, I'm going to have her on my podcast. Um, what was the most surprising thing that she'd experienced in like the last few years of spending time in Africa? And she said, you know, they don't really eat many parts of plants. And I didn't expect that. They don't eat the leaves. And I thought, yeah, I didn't expect that. I didn't, I wasn't expecting them to eat leaves either. So it surprised her. It wasn't surprising to me. She said they basically eat meat and organs and some source of carbohydrate, which could be a starch. Um, they might have a fermented grain. Um, they might have a, a root, or they might have honey when they can get it, or some fruit. But they're generally eating meat and organs and some source of carbohydrate. They don't do vegetables, quote unquote. Vegetables are a westernized construct. They're not eaten by indigenous people throughout the world. Like they realize, like, why would I eat a leaf? There's no calories it's bitter and it generally just makes me have to shit. Like that doesn't make a lot of sense, but now we've, we've raised leaves to the head of the pantheon. Mm. You know, I mean, think about everything we think that's most valuable for humans. It would be kale and spinach and chard and broccoli, which is just the same plant as kale is flowering. Um, yeah. So it's very interesting that we've elevated these false gods, like a pagan God. It's like biblical, you know, God is going to come down from the mountain and smash our, our fake gods. <laughs> Do you think this is um, driven by uh, profit incentive, uh, marketing machine, or are there other elements like misinterpretation of the science or, or what have you 
And, um, you know, I love how you uh, emphasize that concept of redundant pathways where we can see extremely bright and, and well thought out Rhonda Patrick arguing that you consume these broccoli seeds and they're full of nutrition and antioxidant benefits. Uh, but then an easy counter to that is to jump in a cold tub and you don't have all the um, the package insert, you call it, with uh, the, the side effects of taking something that does indeed can be quantified as giving you uh, a health boost at, at great expense or too much expense, I guess your argument is. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of ways to activate NRF2, which is the system that sulforaphane and brassicas activate. And there are ways that have side effects where you eat broccoli sprouts because the compounds, the isothiocyanates in broccoli are not friendly for humans. Um, you could also activate NRF2 by smoking a cigarette, drinking alcohol, uh, ingesting lead or mercury, or by jumping in a cold plunge. So you tell me which has more side effects and less side effects. Well, a cold plunge doesn't really have side effects because you're not ingesting something. This is something I talked about, the juxtaposition of what I would call molecular versus environmental hormesis. And environmental hormetics work through the same pathways. They just don't have the side effects, right? They don't have the package insert side effects like putting a molecule does in your body. So yeah, that's my counter to Rhonda Patrick is why do that? Why, do, why eat sulforaphane and negatively affect the uh, absorption of iodine at the level of your thyroid among other negative effects of isothiocyanates like sulforaphane or just live your life in a cool way, you know, go on a sauna, go on a cold plunge or exercise. <laughs> Imagine that exercise creates oxidative stress, which activates NRF2. So yeah, there's no reason. They're all, they're kind of redundant benefits with these harmful side effects from plants. And this, we have this all wrong and it gets re repeated and parroted infinitely ad nauseum. But, you know, to your, to your original question, I guess what we're thinking about here is, you know, how we move forward in the best way and how we balance all these things um, and how we avoid the toxins in the best way while also getting the nutrients that we're supposed to get. So, um, yeah, I think it's, there's, there's better ways to do it, you know, in our environment with environmental hormesis. And, and that, that makes a whole lot more sense to me. Um, the Hadza just don't eat these things, you know, to your original question, it's like, it's, I think kale must have a good publicist or, I mean, like I don't even know if kale is a lucrative thing. Kale is a monocrop. So maybe there's a bunch of farmers who decided we can grow a shitload of kale and kale is a very hardy plant. Let's convince American consumers that kale is good for them. I don't know if that's what's going on. I definitely think it's misinterpretation of studies that's epidemiology that are associational. Um, but yeah, somehow over the last couple of decades, vegetables have gotten a really good publicist and there's not a lot of good data there. I mean, you can look at tons of interventional studies where they give people more vegetables and another group less vegetables or no vegetables and they don't see any uh -huh. difference in the markers of oxidative stress or DNA damage. There's to say that vegetables are protective for humans is very shaky statement. Eat, you know, looking at interventional quote, real studies and not just epidemiology. It seems to me that any departure from the sorry ass average state of the standard American diet is going to bring uh, miracle healing. And so Dean Ornish and uh, my main man, my good friend, Rip Esselstyn, who's a big leader of the plant-based uh, movement, you're going to bump into him on the street one day in Austin. And, he didn't return uh, my calls. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, these people are smart. They're well-meaning. They have the science behind them. But I feel like there's that other element of of you're taking, it's like a it's like a physiology study taking a bunch of unfit subjects and training them in let's say a, a shitty manner. Uh, they're still going to all get massively more fit than sitting on the couch for six weeks or however long the study lasts. And same with you know the great work that Dr. Esselstyn's done at the Cleveland Clinic reversing heart disease in people that were ticking time bombs. And guess what? They happened to eat something. It wasn't fast food. They fed them a bunch of kale, broccoli, fruit, vegetables, and of course they're going to thrive. But you know we're going back, and and I think you know my my favorite thing is is you're trying to take us from kicking ass level five to to level nine, and you know we don't even know what's in in store for us unless we do some testing and experimenting. Yeah, you know um, I think that for the Esselsteins to claim reversal of atherosclerosis is very questionable. Uh, that really, I mean, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, Rip's dad 
didn't really even publish his, it was like a case series of 18 people. It was very poorly done, shoddy science. It's been questioned widely, widely. Dean Ornish's angiograms widely questioned for the degree of atherosclerosis reversal, even by vegans. Now, there are some vegans in the space who are coming out and saying, this is kind of bullshit. Like we're looking stupid by claiming that a vegan diet reverses atherosclerosis. Now, I believe that the atherosclerotic progression can be reversed or halted, but those studies that have been done on vegan diets are very suspect. Very, very suspect. Yeah. In the scientific community, there's a lot of questioning about even the veracity of that. It's really, it's controversial right now. Uh, yeah. It's not, it's not for sure at all. So angiograms, very sketchy way to do that. The Controversial Health Podcast with Paul Saladino. Besides that, everything Rolls looks on. great from the other, other side of the coin. So what are you going to do in, in Africa? What's your ambition going over there? So I'm going in February for three to 10 weeks, who knows? And the beginning of the trip, I mean, I'm just leaving it open. Uh, mm. The beginning of the trip, I'm going to spend time with the Hadza. I'm also going to spend time with the Datoga, the Chaga, the Maasai, maybe the blacksmith. Um, and I want to see how they live. I want to go hunting with them. I want to talk to them around the campfire and see what they think of the universe, what foods they prioritize, how they live, how healthy they are, how healthy they're not. There's a number of these tribe members who have become somewhat westernized. So I'm interested to see that transition and what those foods have done and what they think and if they're, if they're doing better or worse with westernization and really just to absorb everything I can to, you know, you can read about it in a paper that says they value honey and they eat nose to tail, they eat baobab and they eat berries. And I can talk to people who have been there that say, yeah, that's exactly what they do. But when I see it firsthand and I want to eat honey, you know, I want to eat honey out of a tree, out of a baobab tree that has larva in it. And I want to eat bush pig and I want to eat the organs with them. And yeah, I want to do it all. I just want to have an immersive experience and understand really the last living remnants of how humans might have lived 60, 100,000 years ago, or even 200,000 years ago as Homo sapiens were on this, you know, moving away from Homo erectus and, and just really gather that and, and hopefully create connections so that I can go back regularly. Um, but yeah, I want to, I want to live. I love being in wild spaces. And so um, I'm going to try not to get schistosomiasis uh, <laughs> or other, you know, waterborne diseases. I'm going to try not to get other parasites, but try not to get malaria or bitten by a snake. But I just want to be in wild spaces and spend time with people who are living in a more simple way and see what they prioritize and see what we can learn for them. Because it's cool. I mean, everyone I've talked to is telling me the things that are right in line with what I suspected. So I'm going to go do the experiment for myself and confirm the hypothesis, which is that, hey, humans don't really like vegetables. Vegetables are a fairy tale. We don't need to eat kale and broccoli and spinach. And you don't really need to eat nuts and seeds and grains and legumes to be healthy. And in fact, most people are going to be way better without those. Some plant foods, sure, but think about the least toxic plant foods. And I like, I want to, you know, I want to ask them, why do you eat this? Why don't you eat that? How do you prepare this? Why do you ferment this? Uh, you know, so I'm excited. Well, for the uh, for the westernized ones that have been polluted, you have to bring them some heart and soil capsules. It's only fair if they've been given Cliff Bars by the and and, and uh, sodas by the other researchers. We got to get those guys uh, some fair trading going on. Maybe I will. It'll. Be, I mean, how ironic would that be if I'm bringing them? <laughs> desiccated organs from New Zealand in a capsule and they live in freaking Africa where they can just go hunt it. But, you know, I, like I said, I had my friend Eric on the podcast who's been going to visit the Hadza for the last 10 years. And he told me the story of a woman who was obese, who was markedly obese in the tribe. And he kind of looks over at her and at, kind of saunters up to the chief and asks him subtly, as politely as he can, like, what's going on with, what's going on with her? You know? And, and, and the chief says, oh, she's been spending time with the missionaries in the city. And what do the missionaries feed them? Well, the missionaries happen to arrive while Eric was there and they arrive with wheat flour, corn flour, and ugali, which is cornmeal and vegetable oil, seed oils. So you can, you know, end of, uh, end of a Hadza tribe in Africa, but there's your experiment. You know, you're going to question what it is about westernized processing of foods that makes people fat and unhealthy. It's it's it, you know, it's at least one or all of these three wheat flour, corn flour, and seed oils. And, uh, you know, if you eat more like a, a, a Hadzabe or you eat more like these tribes and you eat less like a missionary, you'll probably do better because I don't think humans are that much different, right? There's a species appropriate diet. And you asked some 
really good questions earlier. I don't think there's a lot of humans. I don't think that really humans are adapted to wheat flour, corn flour, and seed oils. Big surprise, right? Oh, man, that sounds exciting. I appreciate your time so much, Dr. Paul Saladino, host of the Fundamental Health Podcast until the, until the name's changed, and uh, author of the fabulous Carnivore Code. I know it's been really well-received. You're in the reprinting stages, and I think we can go grab that now. We can learn more at heartandsoil.co, and I encourage everyone listening to, to go in deeper with this guy, man. He's on a mission. I can see another book coming out of your Africa trip, too. That would be amazing. We'll see. Like I said, there's a cookbook in 2022 because publisher doesn't want to release until January and we can't get it out for this January. So for your news New Year's resolutions in 2022, uh, we'll have a, we'll have a nose to tail cookbook for you. But in the meantime, we will have that animal-based diet infographic very soon at hardandsoil.co. And yeah, I would love to write another book after this Africa experience. If I'm called to, um, as you know, um, books are a pain in the butt. So there's a lot of work. A lot of work. So you better go buy it after all this <laughs> time and energy. Thank you so much, Dr. Paul. Great to connect again. And good luck to you with all the, the travels and the, the doings over there in, in his new base of Austin, Texas. Thanks, brother. Da, 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 da. Make sure every salad is dressed for success with Primal Kitchen dressings and marinades. Versatile, flavorful, and unique, Use Primal Kitchen dressings to marinate meats, dunk veggies, and add complexity to your favorite salads. With keto-certified, certified paleo, and Whole30 approved options, finding your salad soulmate is a snap. Choose from updated classics like ranch, Caesar, Italian, balsamic, honey mustard, or Greek. Or get adventurous with aromatic sesame ginger, zesty cilantro lime, creamy vegan ranch, or tangy lemon turmeric. Avocado oil-based, these dressings, vinaigrettes, and marinades are an easy, primal-approved way to upgrade any dish. So use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT to take 20% off your purchase at checkout.